Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. When I was in seminary, I had a group of uh, five or six people that I ran around with, a group of friends that we did quite a lot together. And um, one of them was a fellow seminary student, but the rest were just friends that we had met at church. And uh, one of the girls in the group, uh, her family was rather wealthy. Her father ran the local Ford dealership, and so they had more than the rest of us had. And they had a farm outside of town that they would allow us to spend time there, and they had horses, and so we would ride horses quite often on their farm on the weekends. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I always thought you were sort of a cowboy. You just don't really show it. But we, we used to ride horses quite a bit. And so uh, I always rode the same horse. Every time I went out there, I rode an old black and white horse named Cadillac. I'd ridden him over 20 times, and we got along quite well. We'd had no trouble in any of our rides together. On this particular day, I was fishing in one of the ponds, waiting on all of the horses to get ready, and my buddy uh, came out on his horse to get me and tell me we were ready to ride, and I'd seen it in the movies, and so I thought, well, I'll just ride with you back to the barn, and so I hopped on the back of his horse. His horse hadn't seen the same movies that I saw, and so (laughs) his horse began to buck, and I jumped off and walked back to the barn. And so when I got back to the barn and got on Cadillac, I decided for whatever reason on this particular day, I was going to get Cadillac to do what I wanted him to do. You see, we always just rode in a group, and so the horses just sort of followed one another. There really wasn't much to it. But this day, I decided that I was going to take control, and I was going to make sure that Cadillac did what I wanted Cadillac to do. And so when we started to ride, I held him back from the other horses. He didn't like that very much. This time, I didn't jump off. Cadillac threw me off. He began bucking wildly, and I was thrown off. I gave in, got back on the horse, and we rode for several hours, and I let him do what he wanted to do. So in those two hours, there had been no further trouble at all. And we were sprinting back to the barn, as we so often did, racing to to get back to see who could go the fastest, And as we were racing back to the barn, Cadillac, whose memory evidently was better than I thought it was, decided he was going to dart off of that path without any warning to me. And so he took a right, and I kept going straight. And I wound up breaking my wrist, bracing myself on the ground. My bone in my left wrist is still not where it's supposed to be, reminding me of that day. And I walked back to the barn yet again. Though I did learn a valuable lesson that day, and that is no matter how tame a horse might be, and no matter how beautiful and friendly he or she might be, they are still wild animals. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. We want life to operate as we want it to operate. After all, we think we know best, right? Makes sense. We know what ought to happen, and therefore we want to be in control. And we have the same attitude, if we're honest, when it comes to God, which is why we tend to question so many of the things 
that God allows in our life. If God, then why is there evil? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering and sin? Why is there oppression or war for that matter? These remain some of the more perplexing questions in the Christian life. Is God, if God is loving and God is good and God is all-powerful, then why all of these things? If I were in charge, if I were in control, I'd make some changes. Well, our ancient encounter today involves a man well-known for his suffering. And at the same time, he's a man well-known for his questioning of God concerning all of this suffering. When I say the name Job, you instantly know that here is a man who is known for the sufferings that he endured. And if you know some of the story, you might go a little bit even beyond that and say, not only is Job known for suffering, but he's also known for what we might call unjust suffering. That is suffering that was no cause of his own. Job had done nothing to deserve this. Job had not done anything that warranted all of the suffering that he endured. Uh, even by God's own statement, this is true. We are going to examine this, but throughout this series, we've tried to look beyond the character himself, and we've tried to look at it from God's perspective. This is not just a, a moral lesson. This is not a, an example for us to follow per se, but we've tried to look at it from God's perspective. That is why every title in this series has begun with the word God. So today we are talking not just about Job, but we are talking about God's sovereignty. Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. The word sovereignty is a theological term that is nearly synonymous with power or omnipotence. Technically, it refers to the exercise of God's power over his creation. Job needed a reminder that God had a right to exercise his power over that which he had created. And perhaps we need that same reminder this morning. If you don't know where the book of Job is, it is just before Psalms. So find Psalms and turn left. And we're going to be in the last chapter of Job, so it's right next to Psalm 1. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, to be fair, this ancient encounter that we are looking at this morning is a bit different than all of the others we have examined. After all, if you were paying attention when I read those verses, Job is doing all of the talking. There is no encounter here in these six verses other than the fact that in the beginning of verse 3 and all of verse 4, Job is quoting from God from previous chapters. But in this particular section, there is no voice of God. There is no encounter with God. That encounter takes place in one sense throughout the entire book. But in another sense, it certainly takes place from chapter 38 
on. Because God doesn't actually speak to Job until chapter 38. And then all of chapters 38 through 41 are God speaking. He does give Job an opportunity to answer in chapter 40, but Job wisely decides to remain silent, and then God continues to speak some more. And so the verses that we've just read are Job's response to these chapters of God speaking. So to understand this particular encounter, a little bit different than all of the others, we're going to have to take an aerial view of what we find here in the book of Job. And so we are going to begin with where you would expect us to begin, and that is that God is sovereign over suffering. The book of Job begins by saying that Job was a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is important to understand because it is not due to something that Job had done. It is not some sin in Job's life. It is not something hidden that nobody else knows about that is the cause of his suffering. He is an upright and righteous and blameless man. And yet we often think, just like his friends, that if someone is suffering, it must be something that they've done. That was an ancient belief, even as it is a contemporary one. After all, some of the disciples, some of the followers of Christ asked Jesus on one occasion, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you hear what they're saying? They're assuming that the blindness of this man is due to somebody's sin. There is a cause and an effect. And that is what Job's friends are going to assume as well. We also know that Job is a wealthy man, and he has a very faithful family. He is indeed living the good life. The next scene in Job takes us to an encounter between Satan and God. And you need to understand that Job didn't know that. Job was not privy to all that was going on in heaven as to why he was suffering. But Satan basically comes to God and says to him, it's no wonder that Job is a faithful follower of yours. After all, you've blessed him so much. Why, let me take away some of those blessings and let's see if Job will follow you. And so God allows him to do that, short of taking his life. He takes away his flocks. He takes away his family, except his wife. He even takes away his health. So Job is suffering in all of these different manners. And yet we are told in chapter 1 and verse 21, Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now the bulk of this book is taken up with four men. I know you think it's three. Three friends initially come to him, but later a fourth joins them. And so these four friends of Job come to him to give him counsel. And their message is the same. Job, you need to repent. These things don't just happen in life. There is some reason these have occurred, some hidden sin that we don't know about, but we are certain there is something in your life that is causing this, and therefore you must repent. And yet Job consistently tells them that he is innocent of any wrongdoing and has nothing to repent of. His physical and emotional sufferings are compounded by the accusations of his friends. I mean, even his wife says to him, Job, do you still hold to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? That's the advice his wife gives. Curse God, be done with this, and die. It's hard to endure any kind of suffering. But when we're alone in that suffering, it's all the more worse. 
Along the way, Job pleads with an audience, for an audience with God. And he bemoans the silence of God. I told you, God doesn't speak until chapter 38. And over and over again, Job says to God, if I could just have an audience with you, if I could just state my case before you, then I know some things would be different. But of course, that is not allowed, at least not until later. Job is questioning the treatment that God is giving him. He is questioning why he has been faithful to God, and yet God won't speak on his behalf, and God won't defend him before his accusers. Like any of us in our sufferings, he is beginning to doubt the plan and the purposes of God. And yes, even the very sovereignty of God. God, if you're in control of all things, and I'm a faithful follower of yours, then why are you allowing this? Is God really in control of all things? And if he is, why am I going through all of this? Well, that's a quick aerial view of the book of Job leading us to the verses that we read in chapter 42. And in these verses, Job begins by admitting that God can, in fact, do all things, which is, in essence, a definition of the sovereignty of God. Verse 2, I know that you can do all things. And then he further concludes that God has a purpose in all that he does. Now, Job doesn't know that purpose, but he acknowledges that God does have a purpose, and he is trusting God for that purpose. Now, if you know the end of the story, the latter part of chapter 42, you know that God gave him his health back. God gave him more family, greater than he had before, and God gave him greater wealth than even he had had before. And if we know that ending, we might be quick to conclude that Job lived happily ever after. I mean, it's a quick story, and Job lived happily ever after. But don't forget that in the verses we've read, Job doesn't know that. Job is still in the midst of his suffering, and in the midst of that, he says to God, I know that you are sovereign and that you have a purpose in all that you do. He comes to this conclusion long before God gives him all of these things back and in the midst of his suffering. And my question to you is, have you come to terms with that? Have you come to terms with the understanding that God has not promised you wealth and health, in spite of what you might hear on television, that God does have a right to give and to take away and that in either case, he has a purpose and a plan. Now, all of that is easy for us to conclude when things are going well. But again, Job comes to that conclusion when things are not going well. When the blessings of God, as we tend to define them, have been taken away. And I don't know what you're suffering this morning, though I do know that there is a tremendous amount of suffering in various families in our church. Wayward children dying parents, tragic accidents, and the list goes on and on. From a worldwide perspective, there is a tremendous amount of what we might call unjust suffering. And yet we are reminded that God is not unjust and that God is in control in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of the suffering of others. So that's our first point. God is sovereign over our suffering. Secondly, we want to notice that God is sovereign over creation or creatures, or both. 
This is going to be the overriding point that God makes in his lengthy speeches beginning in chapter 38 and going on to the text that we've read this morning. He does it through a long series of rhetorical questions. That is, he asks Job all kinds of questions, much of them about his creation and the creatures that make up that creation, asking where was Job when all of this happened? Or does Job know how to deal with all of this? And so he begins talking about creation and the wonders of that creation. And he says, Job, where were you when I designed the universe? Where were you when I put it together? Where have you been while I've been sustaining it? This is, of course, the point that Job is coming to conclude, that he wasn't there and he doesn't know how it all took place. He doesn't understand all of this. And God even says, Job, I understand that there is evil in the universe, but there are limits to that evil. God is even in control of that. He talks about the weather, something that even with all of our technology, we can't accurately predict. They get it wrong as often as they get it right. And yet God says, I, I control the weather. Then God begins describing various members of the animal kingdom. And the overall message remains the same. God is in control of all of his creatures. He not only created them, but he provides for them. Even as Jesus famously said in the Sermon on the Mount, consider the birds of the air, that they sow not, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God sustains every one of his creatures. And Jesus ends that example by telling us that God provides for us as well. Again, something Job needed to learn and something we need to be reminded of. The taming of various animals is in disgust, which is why I began with the horse illustration. We think we can tame various animals, but in actuality, we really can't. Many other animals we simply do not understand. We know they're more powerful than we are, and yet God is in charge of them all. These two chapters are one long nature show, if you like watching those on television, where God parades animal after animal in front of Job and says, did you create this? Can you control this? And Job remains silent because he, know, he knows he can't. And Job is wise enough to keep his mouth shut. We tend to look at all of creation around us, perhaps from a negative standpoint. That is, all of creation is in decay. It is in a stage of dying. And we know that that is true for us as it is for every other creature. And so even as we inevitably march toward that, the animal kingdom and all of creation is as well, which is why the Bible says that all of creation groans, that God would come and consummate his kingdom but don't mistake that and believe that God has no plan or that his original plan has somehow spiraled out of control. God is still active and lovingly caring for his creation and all of his creatures. And when we doubt that, we are in essence challenging the justice and judgment of God. Again, it is a subtle way for us to say, if I were in control, I would do some things differently. And this is a subtle way of saying that God is not doing things the way he should. There is a better way. And I just happen to know what that better way is. Sounds rather arrogant, doesn't it? Sounds rather prideful when you put it in those terms. And that's exactly what it is. But we tend to soften it just a little bit and pretend that we're just asking. I mean, we're just thinking. 
We're not really saying that God should do something differently. We're just posing the questions. But the larger part of chapter 40 and most of chapter 21 or 41 are taken up with two creatures. And there is a theological debate as to whether these creatures are real or mythical. In chapter 40, it is a creature called behemoth. In chapter 41, it is Leviathan. And there is enough specific comments in these chapters to lead us to the conclusion that these are real creatures. On the other hand, there's enough that really just doesn't fit with anything that we know that might lead us to conclude these are mythical. Regardless, the point is still the same. Job, can you control these creatures? And of course, the answer is once again, no, he can't. So why then is he accusing God? But you say enough about all the creatures. I think most of us would acknowledge that nature is governed by God, created by God, and sustained by God, and we have no problem with that. I mean, we might hook a bass occasionally or kill a buck, but we know we're not king of the jungle. We are reminded of that when we go hiking and come across a bear. And as interesting as that is, and we love to tell the story, we don't tell about the fear that we had in the process because we instantly know that we're not in control when we cross a bear on a hiking trail. That bear is in control, not us. But we're not so much concerned about creatures. We are concerned about ourselves. And so our third point this morning is this, is God sovereign over us? And the answer is absolutely yes. We too are one of his creation. We too are one of his creatures. And therefore, everything we've said in point number two is applicable for point number three. And thus we see God's sovereignty over us. Beginning in verse three, Job is quoting God from the beginning of his first speech in chapter 38. And now Job responds to the question that God had stated that indeed he understands now that he didn't understand all along. Do you know someone who always thinks they know everything about everything? Are you that person? You know, someone who always has to chime in because they know everything about everything. I like to do that jokingly sometimes. Pretend I know something about a subject that I know nothing about just to see if somebody will believe me. So while Job says some right things about God, and even God concedes that in verse 7 of chapter 42, Job now comes to the conclusion that he had spoken out of turn, that these issues were far more complex than he had ever imagined. I well remember when I was in seminary, I was a first-year seminary student, and I was having a conversation with a fellow seminary student who was a few years beyond me in his training, and we were talking about one of these complex issues in the Christian life. It was specifically on the complex issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how these seemingly contradictory things can be reconciled together. And we happened to be at work while we were having the conversation. We worked at a, at a hardware warehouse doing inventory on Saturdays. And so we were there working and he was explaining all this to me and I was growing a little frustrated with all of his explanations, and I finally said to him, you know, they've been arguing and debating this topic for centuries, so I don't think I'm going to be the one to solve it. And he, in all seriousness, said to me, but I have solved it. 
I mean, I must have been standing in the presence of one of the greatest theologians of our day. Who knows what else he went on to solve because I don't remember his name. So I don't, I don't know what else he went on to accomplish. But who knows what other theological things he solved. But the arrogance, the pride. Frankly, it turned me off to the whole argument for a long time. Because I thought, if this is what it leads to, then I don't want any part of it. It's one thing to think we know something about a sport or a hobby, to think we know everything about breaking news, which everybody thinks they know these days. We all come to conclusions based on sound bites. But it is another thing altogether to think we know everything about God. And that's what Job thought. But Job learned that that was not the case. And again, it's, it's the essence of what we do when we question what God is doing in our lives. Whether it's in suffering or success or in any place in between. Questioning God's sovereignty over anything in our life is a subtle way of claiming that we know better. That we would do things differently if we were in control. That if we had the power that God has to do anything, that we would do it vastly differently. That's what Job had been saying. And that's exactly what we say oftentimes in our own life, especially during times of suffering. For a second time, Job references in verse 4 something that God has said. He's quoting a statement that God made actually at the beginning of both of his speeches in chapter 38 and 40. And again, God is asking him a series of questions, and he's urging Job to respond Though initially we know he did not, but now after all of this, Job has finally grasped the greatness of God in a much fuller sense than he ever had before. Now, he had faith prior to all of this. We've already seen God's estimation of him in chapter 1, that here is a righteous and blameless man. But now Job has seen things that he never saw before. His awareness of God has dramatically increased which is why we see the response to God's sovereignty over him in verse 6. Pay careful attention here because here is the proper response to an encounter with God. It begins with humility. Job realizes that he has no business complaining and criticizing the actions of God. All of these are misplaced. Again, we know that Job had not sinned prior to his suffering. There was nothing he had done that led to the suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, he had sinned in the sense that he had questioned God. He had not sinned in his actions, but he had sinned in his thoughts, claiming that he knew better than God, that God was not just, that God was not fair. And now God has humbled him. We will see this in a greater extent in a couple of weeks. We'll take next week off from this series as we celebrate Easter, but in a couple of weeks we'll return and we'll look at that famous passage in Isaiah where Isaiah has that encounter with God and he humbles himself as a result. Humility in many ways is the opposite of arrogance. Secondly, we see repentance. The acknowledgement that Job is in the wrong and that God is in the right and he desires, therefore, to turn away from that wrong. This is the first and only time in the book of Job that he repents. Because, again, he had no sin previously that led to all of this. I'm not saying he was perfect, but there was no sin that led to this for which he should repent in spite of his four friends urging him to. But now that God has revealed himself to him, 
Now that God has spoken for all of these three or four chapters, Job realizes that he had sinned and he had sinned in his thoughts, thinking that God was not just, that God was not fair, or that God was not all-powerful. I wonder if we've ever repented in such a manner. God, I'm sorry that I didn't trust you in the midst of my pain. God, I'm sorry I was wrong to question you in the midst of my suffering. I was wrong to doubt your love and to doubt your care. God, I was arrogant to think I know better how to live my life and what to allow into my life than you do, the one who created and even recreated me. Now, again, throughout this series, we have tried to move forward from the actual Old Testament encounter to look at the New Testament and see what the Bible says about this particular character. In one sense, that's difficult for us to do because in Job's case, he is not found a lot outside of this book. There are only three references in the rest of the Bible to Job, and only one of those are in the New Testament. Two are actually found in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. They're both in chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 14, the prophet is prophesying judgment for the people of God. And he says to them, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were actually here, their righteousness would only save themselves. That is, their righteousness would not cover for your wickedness. But in saying that, Ezekiel is acknowledging the righteousness of Job, something we saw from chapter 1. The only New Testament reference to Job comes in the book of James, where James is talking about how to have patience in suffering, and he commends the steadfastness of Job throughout his suffering. So if you want a moral lesson from an Old Testament character, here it is. You need to be righteous, as Job was, And you need to persevere in your faith, even in the midst of suffering, as Job did. But again, that's not all we are talking about. This is, of course, Palm Sunday, the Sunday that we traditionally think about the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And then we encourage you to think all week about the various events that happened during that last week of his life. So if Job is associated with suffering, and again, as soon as I said that name, suffering came to your mind. And if you know the story, you might have even added, it's not just suffering, but it's unjust suffering. He didn't do anything to deserve this. Well, that's certainly true of another, isn't it? That's certainly true of Jesus Christ. And so we want to see, lastly, that God is sovereign over Calvary. Jesus had done no actions that were sinful, no thoughts for which he needed to repent. He lived a sinless life, and therefore there is no earthly reason for him to experience all of the suffering and ultimately the death that we are going to commemorate this week, especially in our Thursday evening service, thinking about the suffering and death of Christ. So think about that this week. We get so upset over unjust suffering. Whether it is the story of Job, or whether it is our own suffering, or whether it is things like human trafficking, or aggressiveness during war, or tragic violence, the list goes on and on. We, we just, we get so upset about that, and we should. 
We should be grieved by unjust suffering, and we should do all we can to strive to alleviate it. But there is one kind of unjust suffering that we are not grieved over. And in fact, we rejoice in it. We celebrate the fact that Jesus was willing to suffer on our behalf so that we didn't have to. The greatest unjust suffering in history. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive his righteousness. This has to be, without a doubt, unequaled, the greatest unjust suffering in humanity. And yet he was willing to do all of that. Because without it, there was no way for us to be saved and reconciled to God. The average person this week, as they are reminded about the events of the last week of Jesus' life, will perhaps come to several conclusions. Maybe they'll think about the plot of the Jewish religious leaders to get rid of Jesus for the sake of their own power and influence. Maybe they'll think about the betrayal of Judas, one of his own turning his back on Jesus and selling him out for some pieces of silver. Maybe they'll think about the Roman authorities and soldiers willing to stamp out any kind of insurrection or competition. And since Jesus is claiming to be some kind of king, he, he has to go. I mean, if we're not careful with the events of the Passion Week, we might tend to think that the religious leaders or the crowd or the Romans are controlling all of this. And Jesus is just sort of led along things out of his control. But you and I understand that that's not it at all. We understand that all of this was God's sovereign plan all along, not a last-minute adjustment, adjustment to things that he didn't expect. Jesus knew what awaited for him when he went to Jerusalem. He told his disciples, right? He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I am going to die. He knew what awaited him. In the garden, when Judas came with the soldiers, Peter, always the brash one, takes out his sword and begins to defend Jesus, striking one of the soldiers. Jesus responds with these words, Do you think that I could not appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In that garden scene, it looks like Judas and the soldiers are in control. But they're not. Jesus is. When standing before Pilate and refusing to defend himself, Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus responded by saying, You got no authority at all unless it were given to you by my Father in heaven. Pilate thought he was in control. Pilate thought he was calling the shots, but he wasn't. Finally, when Jesus was on the cross, we see yet again that God was in control. Earlier, Jesus had said, no one takes it from me, referring to his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And then he does just that. Luke records his last words as, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. We cringe at the thought of unjust suffering. Except in this one case. And in this one case it brings great rejoicing. 
God suffering unjustly at the hands of men and yet sovereign over every element of it. Why did he endure such pain and shame? So that we wouldn't have to. Now that doesn't mean that we won't suffer. Some justly and some unjustly. In fact, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you should expect suffering. It's going to happen. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. But when we see or when we hear or when we experience unjust suffering, may it remind us of the one who suffered unjustly, willingly, for us. And remember at the same time that God is sovereign over all of it. And that includes his sovereignty over you. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for this week where we celebrate and think back to the sufferings of Christ on our behalf. Job's suffering, though great and far beyond anything we've ever suffered, don't compare to Jesus bearing our sin, the sinless sacrifice bearing our sin and your wrath. I pray this week that we, we would be reminded of all you did for us, that as we gather on Thursday night, we will walk through those things together and be reminded of them so that we can gather again next Sunday morning, genuinely rejoicing that not only did you lay your life down, but you raised it up again. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.